Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great educational website? Then go to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll free of charge. Get a free class, 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll. Look, I've got awesome classes there. Classes on the Constitution, classes on the Civil War, classes on secession, classes on American history. A whole slew of great stuff just waiting for you. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com, enroll, and get a real history education. Are we seeing a change in the efforts to remove the Confederate Memorial at Arlington Cemetery? I'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. Give me that email address when you're there, and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audio book of the same title, read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. You've already heard about that. But again, if you're in August of 2023, time is running out. Use the coupon code JACKSON. Get $70 off my latest class at McClanahan Academy, Reading Andrew Jackson. It's an awesome class. You can get it for the best price you're ever going to see it by using that coupon code. So don't waste the opportunity. Get the class, $70 off, and learn more about that man who I said in my book, Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America, Screwed Up America. But there are some things to like about Andrew Jackson, too. So it's a pretty comprehensive look at Jackson's public pronouncements and where he was right and wrong, and I think you'll enjoy it. You can also, of course, buy more classes there. You can also, if you want to support the show and just uh, throw a few pennies my way, you can go to brianmcclanahan.com, click on the support tab. You can go to uh, McClanahan Academy, as I've already said. You can go to Spotify for podcasters. You can go to YouTube, click on the Super Thanks button under the video. You can do that. Uh, but all those things help support the show financially. If you want to do it painlessly, you can just rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Share it around on social media. Give it that five-star review. Leave a text review wherever you can. Comment on YouTube for the algorithm. All those things help get more eyes and ears on the show. And send me their show requests. I do want to see what you want to hear. All right. Well, we've got the Arlington Confederate Monument. And, of course, I've talked about this on the show before. And I've done things with this with the Abbeville Institute. We actually put out a video a while back that's been shared a pretty fair number of times for what it is. Uh, but it's a video on the monument, the history of the monument and the memorial and why it's there. The Ezekiel Moses Memorial at Arlington Cemetery, which was, of course, the brainchild of ultimately uh, two Republican presidents, uh, William McKinley, who thought there needed to be a Confederate section in the Arlington Cemetery. There were about 400 Confederates buried around Washington, D.C. that he thought should have their own spot in Arlington. Now, of course, the key thing about that is that William McKinley was a Union veteran. In fact, a well-respected and decorated Union veteran. Uh, he was an officer in the war. And um, uh, if anybody should have held resentment for these Confederates who actually shot at him, I mean, it would have been William McKinley. But he thought that these men deserved uh, respect and that they deserve proper burial and also a section, their own section of the Arlington Cemetery, which of course is at Robert E. Lee's house. I mean, the, <laughs> Arlington is Lee's house. So that was done on purpose. Uh, Montgomery Meigs, uh, 
and the Union Army confiscated the home and they planted a cemetery in the backyard so that the Lees could never move back. Now, later on, the federal government determined that there was an illegal confiscation of property during the war and the house went back. It didn't matter because they couldn't do anything with it at that point. They already had the cemetery in the backyard. So um, McKinley thinks that we need uh, a, a section for Confederates. And of course, William H. Taft eventually is the person who gives the go-ahead for this. Now, he is also a Republican. And uh, he, he authorizes the United Daughters of the Confederacy to begin raising funds for a monument. Uh, and Taft actually is the man who gives the speech laying the cornerstone. Now, the monument is dedicated ultimately by Woodrow Wilson, a Democrat. And in Taft's speech, where they're laying the cornerstone, he says, look, as a Republican, I'm on the side that would have been against these people, but I think that this monument serves as the finest example. He doesn't use the word reconciliation, but a spirit of burying the hatchet, burying the sword, so to speak. It is putting the Union back together. Well, what's another word for that? Well, we call that reconciliation. <laughs> I mean, this is the funny thing. You've got the other side saying, they never used the word reconciliation. It's not there. Well, it was a reconciliation memorial. It's in the National Cemetery for the United States, a memorial to the Confederacy in a national cemetery in a Confederate section. That is reconciliation. There was actually a, a poem written by... Um, a man named James Ryder Randall, where he talks about Arlington and what happened. And there was an attempt by ladies, Southern ladies, to decorate the graves of Confederates, and they were shooed away by the Union Army. And a storm came up that day, and it blew all the flowers that were put on Union graves over the Confederate graves, almost like there was some type of divine intervention at that, at that time, saying that these are the graves that should be decorated, not those graves. And so there's been a long period of contention about what we do about these monuments. Decoration Day and these kind of things. You know, Decoration Day started in the South. I know you've got David Blight and others saying, no, 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 this was, a, this was you know, former slaves doing a Memorial Day. That was the first. Uh, that was a one-off. And I've said this before. It happened. It was a one-off. I talked about this in, when I reviewed David Blight's book, which, by the way, there are some chapters in that that I think are very interesting. Um but when I reviewed his book on this podcast, and uh, that because it was a one-off, it was never attempt, uh, going to be an annual event, well, uh, the annual events were first held in the South, and that would be either in uh, Columbus, Georgia, or Columbus, Mississippi. Both places try to take credit for it. I, I tend to side on the Columbus, Georgia position. They were the ones who really came up with it. Uh, and... There is a photograph of that of that event in the Confederate section of what's called Linwood Cemetery in Columbus, Georgia. But I digress. So we have these two Republicans pushing for reconciliation, pushing for an effort to try to heal the wounds of the war. And so Moses Ezekiel, who is a Jewish sculptor, uh, is commissioned to do it. He's a well-known, world-renowned sculptor, and the monument goes up. So what we get ultimately is uh, a, a, and then the graves are moved. Ezekiel's actually buried there too. And so we have the monument being a literal headstone 
for Moses Ezekiel and the people buried right underneath it. Well, when the naming commission is given its charge to rename or uh, come up with a plan for anything that was named after the Confederacy on military installations, one of the things that they were not allowed to do was disturb or go into any type of cemetery. Which is remarkable because, of course, this monument is in a cemetery. And uh, they did it anyways. And so the Congress, with Mike Rogers of Alabama as the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, sides with it, goes along with it. Why? Well, because Mike Rogers wants money for his district in Alabama. There was, If you think back to a couple weeks ago, and there was a big stink about Space Force and the Space Command not coming to Alabama and Huntsville. That's not Mike Rogers' district, but Mike Rogers, just like every other Alabama representative, was ticked that Joe Biden would put Space Command in Colorado, where he has, of course, all his political acolytes. I can tell you right now, if Donald Trump was president, we would have had Space Command in Alabama. But the reason these people want it is because of the federal money. It brings in money. There's federal contracts that come in with all this stuff. And Mike Rogers is so concerned about federal money. You see, he's got a pretty large military installation in his district. He's so concerned about money and federal contracts. He doesn't care about any of this stuff. In fact, um, if anybody really wants to hammer Mike Rogers, they should primary him as being a tool of the woke of Elizabeth Warren and all the Democrats. This is a Warren uh, rider to this bill because, uh, and, and Mike Rogers went along with it because he thought they couldn't get all the money they wanted for United States defense spending, quote unquote, if they didn't go along with this particular rider. Remember the, the House, you know, we had a very thin majority, and uh, they needed the Democrats to get anything through. And Elizabeth Warren said, this is the, this is the price of it. We take away all this stuff. Now, you've also got dummies like Steve Scalise and others who will go along with it because, well, those people were Democrats, you see. And that's that West Coast Straussianism, kind of the stupid things that all these mainstream Republicans do. R is good, D is bad, and all throughout history, the Ds are bad no matter when they are because this is what, I mean, this is, this is who they were. They were traitors, racists, and the Republicans were always good. They were always the good guys. Even though when you point out the complexity of the Republican Party, oh, wait a second. So uh, you've got all of that working, too. Well, remarkably, and I'm going to get take this first little bit of this time to give you, a, again, another historical analysis of what's happening here. Re- remarkably, Jim Webb, who actually ran for president as a Democrat, who had served in, in the Congress as a Democrat from Virginia, writes a letter to the editor to the Wall Street Journal warning against removing the Arlington Confederate Monument. Now, Webb is an old Democrat, meaning he's one of these, what you would call, you know, the, the, uh, the Reagan Democrats or um, the Democrats that were a little more conservative. He's one of those kind of Democrats. And when he was actually, you know, go back just a couple of election cycles, Webb was uh, interested in running for president. And I remember Rush Limbaugh wondering why Jim Webb was even on the stage with the Democrats, that he really wasn't even a Democrat anymore. But that shows you what's happened. The Democrats have left all the conservative Democrats behind. There isn't such a thing anymore in power. Now, I know there are conservative Democrats out there. I know some of them, personally. There are some conservative Democrats. 
but they don't have any power anymore. They don't have any voice in the party. The Republicans have always been the Republicans, and in reality, they've never really been conservative. Now, the base is, right? The people that vote Republican might be, but the party itself has never been conservatives. What we have in America today are two left-wing parties. The old conservative Democrats, this is the rich men north of Richmond. This is what this is. These are conservative, conservative Democrats, you know, kind of anti-war, uh, you know, anti-interventionism, but not maybe necessarily always anti-war, but certainly anti-interventionism. You know, kind of a, of a, a look at uh, federalism. They, they kind of like federalism. They do believe in spending some money on on uh, you know state programs, this is where you know William Buckley couldn't didn't know what to do with George Wallace because Wallace would say things like, "Well, I mean, I am a conservative, but I also don't want people in my state to starve." See, a reliance on federalism in his own state, he would be willing to spend money in there, but and he would say things like, "Well, I don't really care what the education is in New York; I care about what it is in Alabama." And Buckley couldn't stand that because it wasn't nationalist. So you've got some of these Democrats that might still hold some of those positions. And they're against the culture war. They're against wokeism. They're against all that stuff because it tears down the fabric of the United States. And Jim Webb is one of those guys. So I'm going to read this letter that, or this, this opinion piece he wrote for the Wall Street Journal. It made the rounds. And remarkably, now there, you're starting to see a little more interest in this among establishment people. There are some Republicans that have tried to block any kind of spending if the monument is uh, is not removing the monument is not taken off the table. Now I remember when this happened a few weeks back. Of course, the left went into uh, spin mode and said these people were just oh, here. We are in 2023. We're debating the Confederacy and these kind of things. Well, we're talking about a monument sculpted by a Jewish American, uh, and what we want to do is tear it down. I mean, this is where I've said to people, look, they never really wanted contextualization. There, there was another way forward in all this. It wasn't contextualization, it wasn't, and it wasn't iconoclasm. It was more monuments. If you, if you wanted to have another story of America or put up or, or tell a story of America, whatever that story is, and you wanted to have more monuments, well, you just do that. You don't tear down the ones you have. No historian worth their medal should ever be in favor of tearing down a monument, or renaming anything that had already been done. Name new things, go in and, and, and create new things, put up new monuments, but leave the stuff as is. There's a reason why it was there, and it should remain. But certainly the monuments. Certainly the monuments. The monuments should have stayed wherever they are, and if you wanted to put up new monuments, you could have done any of that. No one would have had a problem with anyone putting up monuments. I don't think you would have found an argument out there. You could have had people laugh at some of these monuments and say, well, I mean, that, yeah, great, we're putting that. You could have had that. But you wouldn't have had anyone that would have said, well, you can't do that. They would have gone along with it. Tearing them down is something entirely different. And it's dangerous for American history. And I think Jim Webb hit that... I mean, got that right at the end of this piece. It was very powerful. So let me go in and read this. Of course, Webb has written some interesting books. Uh, but the, the title of this is Save the Confederate Memorial at Arlington. This is in the Wall Street Journal now. 
which is no friend to any of this stuff. And now this is picked up by Red State and some other things. There are some people now talking about this at the 11th hour in so many ways. I mean, here we are right at the end. We're actually getting some people interested in this. Uh, and I find that fascinating that, you know, there isn't much time left for this. A commission will tear down this monument to national healing by year's end if we don't act. He says, in 1898, 33 years after the end of the Civil War, the Spanish-American War brought a sudden, unanticipated harmony and unity to a country that had been riven by war and a punitive post-war military occupation, which failed at wholesale societal reconstruction. And the South American flags flew again as the sons of Confederate soldiers volunteered to fight, even if it meant wearing the once-hated Yankee blue. President William McKinley presciently seized this moment to mend a generation's sectional divide. McKinley understood the Civil War as one who had lived it, having served four years in the 23rd Ohio Infantry enlisting as a private and discharged in 1865 as a brevet major. He also knew the steps to take to bring the country fully together again. As an initial signal, he selected three Civil War veterans to command the Cuba campaign. Two, William Rufus Shatner, given overall command of the Cuban operation, and H.W. Lawton, who led the 2nd Infantry Division, the first soldiers to land in the war, had received the Medal of Honor fighting for the Union. The other, Fighting Joe Wheeler, the legendary Confederate cavalry general, led the cavalry units in Cuba after being elected to Congress in 1880 from Alabama and working hard to bring national reconciliation. So look, now who else did this? Let me back up here and give you some historical precedent about this. We look at this and say, oh, gosh, McKinley, just a lost cause. This guy's terrible. He didn't punish the South. Who else did this stuff? Who else would select generals based on where they were from? I'll give you a guy, and everyone loves him. That would be George Washington. In 1798, when George Washington was tapped to put together the potential United States military for war against France. There's a very long letter he wrote to Alexander Hamilton on this. And in that letter, he talked about sectional divide in generals. We should get generals from here. We should get generals from there. We should try to keep the Union together through the military. In fact, what Washington hoped to do with the National University was heal the sectional divide in America. It was already there. He knew it. It was all there. This isn't new in 1898 or 1861. It had been there in the 1780s. Washington was doing this exact same thing. You could say this is McKinley being very Washingtonian in this way, actually. To have these generals selected based on where they're from. There is a really remarkable exhibit in the National Infantry Museum in Columbus, Georgia. It's a it's a room, small room, it's not large, and it's not set, it's it's in the middle of a main gallery. Uh, as you the, as you walk down into all the exhibits where all the separate exhibits are, there's a little room there. It's glass walls. In that room you have every Medal of Honor winner in the United States military's history, US military. And of course all that really began in the eighteen sixties. You had the Medal of Honor there and a lot of those individuals are from the North and the Civil War, but you do have a lot of other people there, and it's a powerful exhibit. It really is. And, of course, they have areas you can go and read about people that won the Medal of Honor. It's really quite remarkable. 
The Southerners are left off of that until you get to a unified United States military again in the Spanish-American War. And that is remarkable. This is what McKinley knew. Uh, what was on everyone's mind in the 1890s and the 1900s, early 1900s, 19-teens, was reconciliation. They wanted the United States put back together. It's really what the war on history is about now. It's not about the war. It's about reconciliation. That's what everyone doesn't like. That's what David Blight doesn't like. The whole book is a critique of reconciliation. Essentially. This is what these people don't like. It's what the, the iconoclasts don't want. They don't want reconciliation. Those people should have been punished. They were traitors. They held views that we don't like today in 2023, even though Northerners held the same views oftentimes. But they held views we don't like. That's the whole point. This monument, this Arlington Confederate monument, where swords are turned into plowshares, where the wounds of war are supposed to be healed and everyone moves forward. In fact, the monument is called the New South Monument, where the old animosities are buried. That has to go away. What do you think you're doing when you take it down? You're rekindling the old animosities. But to these woke idiots like Ty Sidule, he doesn't see it. He just wants to dance on the graves of Confederates, really. And literally, he wants to do that. He wants to plow it over. Bulldoze it over. Webb continues, Four days after the Spanish-American War ended, McKinley proclaimed in Atlanta, quote, In the spirit of fraternity, we should share with you in the care of the graves of Confederate soldiers. This is December of 1898. In the spirit of fraternity, we should share with you in the care of the graves of Confederate soldiers. Now, we had had Decoration Day for about a decade before this, for uh, which we now call Memorial Day, in the North. We had had that for about 30 years in the South. But again, remember, I told you that James Ryder Randall poem where Union vets, soldiers, didn't like women putting flowers on graves of Confederates. McKinley comes out, a Union veteran, an officer says, no, no, we should do this now. In that call for national unity, the Confederate memorial was born. It was designed by internationally respected sculptor Moses Jacob Ezekiel, a Confederate veteran and the first Jewish graduate of the Virginia Military Institute, who asked to be buried at the memorial in Arlington National Cemetery. On one face of the memorial is the finest explanation of wartime service perhaps ever written by a Confederate veteran who later became a Christian minister. Quote, not for fame or reward, not for place or for rank, not lured by ambition or goaded by necessity, but in simple obedience to duty as they understood it, these men suffered all, sacrificed all, dared all, and died. What a beautiful inscription. Not for fame or reward, not for place or for rank, not lured by ambition or goaded by necessity, but in simple obedience to duty. Now, for, for centuries, part of the Western tradition was that obedience to duty. In fact, there was a very famous memorial to the Spartans who died at Thermopylae. 
in Greece, if you go over to Thermopylae, there's a, there's a Spartan memorial there. And essentially the inscription is, we lie here in obedience to the Spartans. It's duty. That's why we're dead. That's why we're here. We were fighting the Persians because of duty to Sparta. You see? These men suffered all, sacrificed all, dared all, and died. This was, in many ways, like the Thermopylae Monument. And you saw this across the South. I mean, people were, people understood the Persian Wars. They understood the Western tradition. They understood what all of that meant. Northerners didn't like those references. They didn't want to be classified as the Persians, as the despots. They didn't like that stuff. One of the most uh, uh, famous uh, Confederate intellectuals or Southern intellectuals was Basil Gildersleeve, and he was a professor of classics at Johns Hopkins. And uh, you know he would often compare the war to Greek events. And again, Northerners didn't like this stuff because they were portrayed as the bad guys. They're not the bad guys. They're the good guys, according to every West Coast Straussian, neoconservative, and progressive leftist. You see they're all on the same page on this. Mike Rogers doesn't care as long as you get the money into Alabama. Webb says, but now in this new world of woke, use unless measures are taken very soon, by the end of this year, the Confederate memorial will be gone. With surprising overbroadness, the 2021 National Defense Authorization Act passed in the midst of the national racial and political upheaval, empowered a naming commission to remove all names, symbols, displays, monuments, and paraphernalia that honor or commemorate the Confederate States of America or any person who served voluntarily with the Confederate States of America from all assets of the Department of Defense. As part of that provision, Arlington National Cemetery has been ordered by Defense Department officials to remove the memorial by the end of this year, though the order is repeatedly, reportedly, I'm sorry, under review. But I love how he says, with surprising overbroadness. So Webb says, having spent four years as a full committee counsel in the House and six years as a member of the Senate Armed Services Committee, I cannot imagine that the removal of this memorial, conceived and built with the sole purpose of healing the wounds of the Civil War and restoring national harmony, could be within the intent of a sweeping sentence placed inside a nearly trillion-dollar piece of legislation. Well, he might not think that, but of course these people do. They knew what they were doing. They knew they could put it on there, and you had... You know, Biden in office and his woke military generals in control of the Defense Department, of course, the military, and they were going to go along with it. They knew what they were doing. They knew whatever they recommended was going to get passed. It's disgusting, but it would happen. The larger and ultimate question reaches further into America's atrophied understanding of the Civil War itself. What was it that Union Army veteran McKinley understood about the Confederate soldiers who opposed his infantry units on the battlefield that eludes today's monument smashers and ad hominem destroyers of historical reputation? It's a good question. What is it that McKinley knew that these modern woke morons don't? These modern midwit junior historian activists. What is it that McKinley, a veteran of the war, knew and understood that these idiots did not? Think about that logically. And I know you're listening to this program, so you're already indoctrinated into this, but maybe as somebody who hasn't heard this before. But think about that. 
a person that actually served and faced Confederate bullets is in favor of a monument, and dorks who have become history majors are in favor of tearing it down. Ty Sigerly, who, of course, is a general, retired now in the U.S. Army, but didn't face the kind of combat that William McKinley did, served most of his career as a teacher. Who are you going to listen to? Which one? But even the other idiots that are in favor of this stuff. All little people running their mouths on social media and journals and writing little books about this stuff. Who are you gonna who are you going to support? The guy that actually was shot at or those other people? McKinley's fellow soldiers understood that during the Civil War, four slave states remained in the Union Maryland, Delaware, Missouri, and Kentucky. And none of them were required to give up slavery during the entire war. That's true. They weren't required. We know that Maryland abolished it in 1864. Kentucky still had slaves uh, until November of 1865. Still had slave auctions until November of 1865. The war ended in April of 1865. Delaware didn't abolish slavery until December of 1865. Missouri and occupied areas had... um, there was some push. There was a push to get rid of it earlier, but I've made this point many times. We had two slaveholding republics fighting each other in 1861. This is true. We had members of the Union military that were slave owners. That's true too. Webb, in fact, make that makes that point in the next sentence. And and that in every major battle of the Civil War, slave owners in the Union Army fought against non-slave owners in the Confederate Army. That's also true. There were non-slave owners in the Confederate Army. So everyone knew this. Everyone knew that. They understood that President Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation had not freed the slaves in those states or in the areas of the South that that had already been conquered. The proclamation freed only slaves in the areas taken after it was issued and in the eyes of of a Confederate soldier. If Lincoln had not freed slaves in the Union, why should the soldier be vilified for supposedly fighting on behalf of slavery? Also, remarkably enough, if you look at a lot of the Union monuments that were put up about the same time Confederate monuments were being put up, in fact, you you look at when these things happened, it's 50th anniversary, 25th anniversary, all these things are going on, 100th anniversary. But 50th anniversary was a big one. You had a lot of Union monuments going up at that time, 30 years, 40 years. Very few of them actually mention slavery as being even part of this. And the, the Wokies can't stand it. They look at the things that had been done, and of course they look at them as paternalistic, and there's a bit of racism involved in it. So, I mean, they don't like this stuff either. They don't like those monuments either. They want them gone too. This is just the beginning, you see. Many soldiers in the North and many more in the South would have understood what John Hope Franklin, America's most esteemed black historian, pointed out, in 1860, only 5% of the whites in the South owned slaves, and less than 25% of whites benefited economically from slavery. An estimated 258,000 Confederate soldiers died in the war, about a third of all of those who fought for the South. Few owned slaves. So why do they fight? So why do they fight? So John Hope Franklin, who, uh, by the way, at one time, he died in 2009, but at one time, John Hope Franklin, who I think was head of the uh, American, let's see, American Historical Society. I mean, he, he was big, right? He was one of the most prominent historians in the United States. 
And I'm not certain if we would have bought into the woke narrative. I don't know. But he was pointing out some uncomfortable things for uh, the modern assault on all things Confederate that people now just ignore. The soldier who wrote the inscription on the Confederate memorial knew, and so did President McKinley and most veterans who have fought in American wars. They knew that. Webb says, in 1992, as a private citizen and veteran of the Vietnam War, I was seeking to begin a process of reconciliation with our former enemy and hosted a delegation of Vietnamese officials in Washington. One of my objectives was to encourage Hanoi finally to make peace with the South Vietnamese veterans who had fought against the North and who, after the war, were labeled traitors, denied any official recognition as veterans, and hundreds of thousands were imprisoned in re-education camps. This is a really strong conclusion to this, by the way. So here's Webb, a veteran of the Vietnam War, saying, look, 1992, we're bringing, I mean, you got to think about it. Vietnam War had only, not even over 20 years, really, at that point. Now, if you want to look at American, ultimate American involvement, 1992 is about 20 years. Everything really begins to settle down by 73. Americans start to really get out full. I mean, there's still combat operations going on, but 75 is when we're finally officially out. This is only 20 years. Think about 1865, 1885 would have been that, right? 1898, 30 years. We're about that period. So these people come over here and he's talking about, all right, look, we had this war. Let's try to heal the wounds of the war. Make Vietnam a better place. To make my point, I brought them to the Confederate Memorial in Arlington. Pointing across the Potomac River from Arlington National Cemetery toward the Lincoln Memorial, I told them the story of how America healed its wounds from our own Civil War. The Potomac River was like the Benai River, which divided North and South Vietnam. On the far side was our North, and here in Virginia was our South. After several bitter decades, we came together, symbolized by the memorial. What a beautiful statement. Here you have these people from Vietnam saying, look, this is it. Across that river was the north. Here was the south. This is North Vietnam. This is South Vietnam. <laughs> First of all, I love it that he calls that he calls the north North Vietnam. Those are the communists over there, and down here are the good guys <laughs> in Virginia. I love that. Right? I mean I don't know if he meant to do that, but if he did, it's really funny. You got the commies up there in the north, and down here you got the good people in the south. And uh, But they're the victors, right? And here in the South, what happened? Well, the Northerners advocated the erection of a monument to honor these Southern dead. And they considered them part of, a, of the American military tradition. These were veterans that deserve respect. So Webb says this, and I, again, I think this is fantastic. He says, if it is taken apart and removed, leaving behind a concrete slab, the burial marker of its creator in a small circle of graves, it would send a different message, one of a deteriorating society willing to erase the generosity of its past in favor of bitterness and misunderstanding conjured up by those who do not understand the history they seem bent on destroying. What a beautiful statement. If this thing is taken down, instead of being a monument of reconciliation, It'll be a monument of bitterness and misunderstanding conjured up 
by those who do not understand the history they seem bent on destroying. Now, they would say they do. Oh, yeah, we do, Webb. You don't understand. These people were bad people. They were traitors. They were bad guys. They had bad views. You just don't understand. You don't understand any of it. Now, this is not going to endear Webb to any of his uh, former you know, Democrat supporters on the left. They're not going to like him for this. But Webb was heroic for doing this. So, we'll see. I think there is maybe a turning point here. Maybe more people are interested in it, and there are have been some public public uh, you know, processes for perhaps keeping the thing up. A lot of energy has gone into this. Uh, at the same time, you have a lot of groups still trying to keep the monuments up where they are, and we know that there's a there is a lawsuit in Florida right now. The Pensacola Confederate Monument was taken down, perhaps, and I think conclusively illegally and there's an effort to try to put have that monument placed back where it was which would be absolutely hilarious i mean i can only imagine i'm sure that something would happen to it fall off the truck or something going over there i mean there would be something that would happen but um it, it's it's funny that some of these things are happening you've got other people that would say that all the iconoclasm is kind of stopped that it's been stopped in its tracks because most Americans are not on board with it. Uh, I, I still think there's going to be efforts to take these things down. You're going to see more of it, but it's going to take something else to do it. I don't know what that is. Hopefully nothing terrible. Uh, nobody wants any of that to happen. Uh, but this was, again, a heroic move by Jim Webb, who, because of his status, I mean, look, he's a infantry officer in Vietnam, served in the Marines, right? Secretary of the Navy, um, United States Senator. I mean, this this is an important individual, ran for president of the United States. And here he is saying things that need to be said, and hopefully enough Americans pay attention to it, that they'll chime in and say, no, you can't remove that monument. That's ridiculous. We'll see. Only time will tell. All right. See you next time with the Brian McClain Show. See you then.